Please turn with me to the second half of your Bible as we uh, read our sermon scripture for this morning found in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we are going to read verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. So earlier this week, uh, my lovely wife asked me um, what I was going to be preaching on today, and uh, I quickly replied, I was really excited, I replied, the Trinity, right? And and she chuckled, and she said, oh man, why'd you choose that? (laughs) Um, So now that Sunday morning is here, I can confirm, it's been a very long week of reading, of thinking, and reading some more, and reading even more, and thinking once again. There was a great... Puritan pastor who once said that our narrow thoughts can no more comprehend the Trinity and unity than a little nutshell will hold all of the waters of the sea. I've been reading through one of Thomas Watson's books to help me grasp the shorter catechism as I've been preaching on it this year. And when I stumbled upon this quote this past Monday, I was, I was ready to throw up my hands and just say, I quit, right? I, I, I quit. I mean, how on earth am I supposed to preach a sermon on the Trinity when I read that comprehending this divine mystery is harder than shoving all of the world's oceans into a little peanut shell, right? I've been told that I am pretty good at Tetris, and and I've I've spent a decent chunk of my life the past 40 years moving from one place to another. So I'm I'm pretty good at stuffing things, uh, a lot of things into tiny spaces. So, uh, but an entire ocean into a nutshell seems pretty difficult. So this morning, I'm going to do my best, and I'm going to leave the miracle up to the good Lord himself. And this endeavor seems a bit monumental, so I think it's best if we begin by approaching the throne of God and ask him for wisdom this morning from his word. Let us pray. God, our Father, thank you for loving us enough that you gave your Son as a light amidst our darkness. I ask that you send your Spirit now to enlighten our hearts and enlighten our minds to the will found in your word this morning. It is through the same Jesus Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So this morning, we are going to take a look at the doctrine of the Trinity. We've been working our way through the shorter catechism, and today we find ourselves on the sixth question, which reads this. How many persons are there in the Godhead? Do we have any answers from the congregation? Any guesses? How many persons in the Godhead? Three. Yeah. So the catechism answers, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God in the same substance, equal in power and glory. So one God in the same substance, equal in power and glory. Right? This concept can be a bit difficult. Right? In, in all honesty, it doesn't really check out mathematically, right? If you have 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1, right? That is mathematically impossible, but this morning we will try and unpack that mystery. But first, I think we should ask, why is this divine mystery, this mystery of the Trinity, why is this important? Right? Why is this important? 
It's important because history tells us that most theological heresies or errors come from this doctrine or this set of beliefs centered on the Trinity. Right? This concept of three in one is huge. I was talking with a new friend this past week, and he's, a, he's an elder in a Reformed uh, Baptist church. I'm, I'm not too sure what to call him. Maybe they're Calvinistic Baptist or Covenant Baptist, Dr. Holcomb. Um, but anyways, they're, they're dealing with this member of their church who's been watching. Uh, he's, he's gone down a very dark hole on the Internet and YouTube, right? And he now denies that the Trinity is taught in the Bible. Right? And their church is dealing with this right now. And this, this doctrinal heresy is actually a belief that I think is a lot more prevalent than we understand. Our own Mr. Morkin has been uh, addressing this, uh, been addressing ancient history and, and this debate on his podcast recently. Right? This, this is why doctrine matters. Right? Because when people misunderstand the Trinity, it is, it's only the gateway to bad beliefs, and it tends, it tends to send us on a spiral. And, it, and eventually you end up throwing out Scripture and leaving in the faith. So we need to try and grasp this mystery, because the Bible talks about this mystery. And I do believe that the Bible does teach us about the concept of the Holy Trinity And this morning, we're going to dive into the salutation of Peter's first letter, right? So please open with me in your Bibles and let us read uh, this message, these two verses in its entirety once again. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. In the opening sentences of his letter, Peter presents us with the three persons found in the Godhead. The Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So this morning, as we walk our way through these two opening sentences, I want to address a few things. I want to address, uh, first, who we are. Right? This matters. Who are we? And then we're going to address who God is, and then we're going to figure out why all of this matters. But before we dive into the great doctrine of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and discover who God is, let us first take a look at who we are. Look with me at verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, At first glance, it it might appear that Peter was writing this letter to a very specific group of people. But in actuality, this debate, this is actually a very debated topic among scholars. You see, the exiles uh, of the Great Dispersion were actually Jews in the Old Testament. When the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, they took Jews back with them to Babylon and took them as their slaves. And the Jews were exiles there for many decades, and they lived in a foreign land under a foreign rule, But after a couple decades of slavery, uh, they were released, and many Jews returned home to Jerusalem. But many of them also stayed in Babylon, and they were dispersed throughout that region. And those people who remained are known as the Diaspora, right, the Great Dispersion. So some think that Peter uh, is writing to their descendants that are scattered across Asia Minor. But some scholars will say that Peter was not really writing a letter to these descendants of an ancient people group, Right? If we read on in this letter, we see that he's not even specifically writing to Jews, but he's writing to Gentiles. 
So who is he writing to? Throughout his letter, Peter addresses his audience as exiles, as strangers, as sojourners. Many scholars believe that this, uh, he's using this concept as a spiritual metaphor to explain that we, as Christians, are foreigners on this earth. Right? Because our home lies not here, but somewhere else. I mean, have you, have you taken a moment to, to, to watch the news lately? Right? Our world is upside down, completely upside down. We're being told that uh, what we know to be true is, in fact, false, and what we thought was false is actually true, and, and, and th- this doesn't make sense, does it? It shouldn't make sense. Because God's, as God's people, we are sojourners in a foreign land. It doesn't make sense. Sometimes Christians have a tendency to think that, you know, if we just do all of the right things, if we read our Bibles, if we go to church, and if we love others really well, then life should just work itself out perfectly, and it should go real smoothly, right? Have you ever had a long week that turns into maybe a a long month or even a long year, right? This life is exhausting, and we are not promised to have it easy. We will never have enough time or money or enough peace here on this earth. Why? Because we're sojourners. We don't belong here. We're exiles in a foreign land. We were not created for this existence of pain and for suffering. And the Apostle Paul tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. There is a greater hope for those of us who call Jesus our Lord. We are elect exiles. We are chosen by God. Verse 2 says, To the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This small word elect brings about more great controversy in, in church. Right? I propose that this word uh, chosen, this word elect, should actually bring us great joy. I, I may be dating myself right now, but I, I don't know if kids still do this. But I want you to go back in your mind to the playground in elementary school. Right? Your friends, you and your friends have gotten together and you've decided that uh, it's time to play a really good game of kickball. Right? Have you ever done that? Or maybe it's some other game, but you, your friends have gotten together and you've decided it's time to play. So what do you do? You all stand in line, and the two best athletes become the team captains. Right, You've got to have two teams. And so they're, they're the team captains, and they're there, and you're here in this line of all these people, and you're just standing there waiting to be picked. What a miserable place that line is. Right, Time just seemed to slow down. Right, Anxiety would build, and your whole life worth seemed to take stake as players were chosen by the team captains. Right, One at a time. How did it feel to have your name called? The tension, the anxiety, the grief, all this dissipated as you walked over and you joined your fellow teammates, right? Because you were chosen. You were chosen. All that anxiety just gets washed away. And that's how, uh, you, that's how it is with God. We are chosen. It is something that we should be excited for. You're not alone. Right? We are all wandering through this life. We're all confused and tired and exhausted and anxious. But those who wait on the Lord are chosen. They're picked by the creator of this universe according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Church, there's a hope. There's a hope in the foreknowledge of God. I'm going through Greek for the third time. Uh, <laughs> 
unofficially, um, but I'm, I'm going through some Greek, uh, the intro to Greek with some friends uh, on the side of school. Um, and you may not think that you know Greek, but I'm willing to bet that you've heard of their word for foreknowledge. It's prognosis. Do you know that? Prognosis. You've probably heard of this in the doctor's office, right? When you're sick, you go to the doctor for a diagnosis, right? And if he or she is a really good doctor, right, they will, they will then follow up the diagnosis with the prognosis, right? There is, that is, there's a plan for how this sickness is going to play out. A prognosis points to the future of how this brokenness is going to play out and what medicine or treatment can be given to help this situation along. And as humans, we've been given a diagnosis, right? The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. But as Christians, we are chosen exiles, and we are given a hopeful prognosis. We're given a life for hope and a future that is far better than we deserve. Right? And that's where the doctrine of the Trinity comes in. So who are we? We're elect exiles. We're chosen sojourners in this foreign land. And I would argue that this is who Peter is writing this letter to. Chosen sojourners. And that brings us to our second point this morning. We looked at who, um, who we are. And now let's take a minute to discover who God is. For those of you that like outlines, there will be three points under this line. Who God is. I bet you can guess who those three are. Right? Who is this triune God? The Westminster Confession of Faith gives us a really great definition, and it says, In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, and they are of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Right? This is, this is exactly where our math stops working. One plus one plus one uh, does not equal a divine three. Right? It equals one. So how does this Trinity mystery work? Right? Isn't this a blatant contradiction? Right? One God, one substance, one essence, one being, but three persons? See, this is where I think our language tends to get in the way. When we talk about a person, right, we are individuating, right, this person over here from this person over here, right? We figure that one person, one person, one being, right, or, or one being over here, and we have one person. But we've never really conceived of anything being one being, yet three persons. Did you know that the English word for person comes from the Greek theater? Have you ever seen the symbol for the theater where you've got these two masks? Right, and one of those masks has this really big, huge, goofy smile on it. And what does that indicate? It indicates a comedy, right? And then the other mask has this big, upside-down, uh, really nasty, huge frown on it. And what does that indicate? Tragedy, right? Or a sad story. And these masks were used in the theatrical productions. You see, the Greeks built these huge, ornate theaters. And, and sometimes these theaters would even seat thousands of people. And they were designed really well for sound to carry. They didn't need microphones and speakers and all of these things. Sound carried. But the person in the back might not be able to see the facial expressions on the actor. So the actor wore masks that were used to exaggerate their emotions of the character. right? So that the emotions of this character could be seen from far away. 
And every character would typically have several of these masks, and they would change them throughout the play to dictate certain emotions that this character was going through. Do you know what the Greeks called these masks? Personas. Persons. Right? A persona would be used to identify the ways in which characters were manifested. One character, many persons, many personas. And this language is, is where our language comes from to, con- to, to captivate this divine mystery of the Trinity. And there is one being of God, one substance of God, one very essence of God. Yet God consists of three distinct persons. R.C. Sproul said that this concept is a mystery. It's not irrational, it's not a contradiction, and most importantly, it is faithful to Scripture. In the Bible, we find that the second person of the Trinity is, in fact, also God. That's John 1, right? And it is that second person who became incarnate. We see that in Matthew 1. And the fullness of God dwelt within him, and that's in Colossians chapter 2. Right? The divine nature of Jesus is one and the same essence with the Father. And it is from the Father and the Son that we are sent a great advocate, the Holy Spirit, who we are told will lead us and guide us to obey God's will. So who's God? Look with me at again at verse 2. To those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Here in the opening sentences of his letter, Peter unfolds this mystery of the Trinity, and he he provides a glimpse of the work of each person in the unified Godhead. Right? We have one essence, three persons. We have the Father, who we are told foreknew. We have the Spirit, who sanctifies. And we have the Son, who shed his blood. So as we looked at our text this morning to see who exactly God is, Let's spend a minute and kind of unpack these three persons and their different roles. The relationships between the relationship between these three persons is very important because it's very important to our understanding of the Trinity. Our confession states that the Father is of none. Right? He's neither begotten nor proceeding. There's nothing before him. Right? The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. It means the Son is has always and will be comes from the Father. There was no creation of the Son. He just was the Son. And the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. To put it in another way, the the Father is the Father. He is not the Son or the Spirit. Right? The Son is the Son. He is not the Son is not the Father and the Son is not the Spirit. And likewise the Spirit is the Spirit. He's not the Father or the Son. There's a divine being with one essence, one substance, right? Who's equal in power and being. And in this being, there's those three persons. The word here is important. It is important to note that there are not three individuals, three individuals in the Godhead who are alongside one another, yet separate from one another. Louis Burkhoff puts it this way. There are three personal self-distinctions within the divine essence. He goes on to argue uh, in, his, in his theology, he goes on to argue that there are three persons who are distinguished not by essence, but by their personal properties and by the way in which the works of the triune God are presented to us in Scripture. 
coming from the Father and through the Son and the Holy Spirit. I know this is a really big concept and it's a lot to unpack, but bear with me as we explore the different roles that we see here in our text in 1 Peter this morning. First, we see that Peter's letter is addressed to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God, God the Father. Right, God our Father calls us to him. This concept of a special people or the elect comes from the first commandment. Uh, the, sorry, the first covenant which God made with the Jewish people. Right in the Old Testament, Jehovah said to the Israelites, he said, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. A special treasure above all people on the face of the earth. This statement can be kind of hard to swallow these days. It might cause a microaggression. Right? The, did the Bible just say that there are some above others? Right? Modern Christians run from this. They run from this language as it seems exclusive or offensive. But, you know, that was just the Old Testament covenant, right? Like, it doesn't really pertain to us today, does it? What does God have to say about this in the New Testament? That this special choosing or this election has been extended through the New Covenant under Christ to all who experience salvation through their faith in Jesus. Later on in his letter, Peter says this, You were once not a people, but you are now the people of God. He's speaking to the Gentiles. You are now a people of God. The invitation is no longer this exclusive uh, invitation to the Jews, right? this chosen race, but it's also open to the Gentiles, the not-Jews, right? to you and to me. And it includes all of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Right, this, this is the prognosis or his purpose for our lives. Right, it's much more valuable than being merely chosen for a kickball team. Right, this one or that one. But Peter is trying to tell us, what he's trying to convey is that we are a chosen people. And that we are strangers in this temporary land as our citizenship belongs with God the Father in heaven. The creator of this universe declares that you belong to him. You're his and it is because of his grace that we have a hope and that we have a promise that the worries of this life, the stress of this life, right, are all but temporary. And God the Father calls us to him. Secondly, in our passage this morning, we see the work of God the Son, Jesus Christ. It is only by shedding of his own blood for our sake that we can be saved. Right? It is not by any work or deed or thing that we can earn a citizenship in heaven. Right? For God so loves the world that he gave his only son so that we might have life in his name. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God, hath faithfully just satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given unto him. Like that, that is, that is how Jesus is. In his opening sentences of his letter, Peter not only acknowledges God the Father and his great mercy, but he also acknowledges God the Son. Right, whose blood paid our debt in full. 
Here lies another concept that modern Christians tend to shy away from, right? The blood of Christ. Right? We sing about it in our hymns. Right? We read about it in the Bible. Uh, but this concept is rarely addressed in contemporary pulpits. Right? It, just, it just seems a bit creepy. Right? Why are we talking about this blood of Christ? Why does Peter talk about the sprinkling of Christ's blood in the opening of his letter? You see, in the Old Testament, sacrifices were commonplace in most cultures throughout the world. But today this concept seems a bit odd, a bit maybe harsh, right? How is this blood business still relevant to us in 2023? And I think the Bible talks about this quite a bit. The Bible tells us that it is still relevant as our, because our sentence, as fallen human beings, our sentence, our wages, what we deserve is death. Because of our sinion and because of our rebellion against a holy God, you and I must pay the wages. And these wages are serious, for the wages of sin is death. So in order for our debt as sinners to be paid, blood has to be shed. Long ago, God set up this system, this system of reoccurring rituals in the Old Testament that required uh, the sacrifice of animals. And they had all kinds of different sacrifices. I got to write about them in a test yesterday. Um, but there's, there, there's, they sacrificed animals. And these sacrifices were never meant to be complete. They were never meant to be enough. They'd have to do them over and over and over again. The wages were never paid in full. This blood wasn't good enough. But God, in his sovereign providence, he had a plan all along. Right? He would send his son, Christ Jesus, to pay those wages which you and I owe. Right? Christ came. He lived this perfect life. He died and was buried, and he resurrected on the third day. So that what? So that you and I might have life. And that is the work of the Son. So when we ask, who is God? We, we need to recognize that God in his omniscient, all-knowing state, has chosen us from before the foundation of the world, and he himself has paid our debt in full through the shedding of Jesus' blood. And that's part of the work of God the Son. But God's glory doesn't stop there, as there is one who is sent from the Father and from the Son. That is, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, right, or the, or the Holy Ghost as we read it, in our Westminster standards. So what is the work of the Holy Spirit? Look with me back at verse 2. To the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. It is here in these first few words that we can discover the twofold work of the Spirit. Right? First, it is through the Spirit that we are sanctified, that we are made right with God. And for what end? For what purpose? Secondly, Peter tells us that we are to be set apart for obedience to Jesus Christ. To be sanctified means to be set apart, to be separated. Right? And that's exactly what Peter is trying to uh, tell us in, the, in, the, in these few words. Right? That we are to be strangers in this world and that we are given a new position and we are infused with a new power to obey. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, reiterates this truth, right? This is something that is talked about again and again and again in the New Testament. And Paul claims that we are no longer in the flesh, but we are in the Spirit, right? This is our new position, and therefore, by the Spirit, 
We ought to put death to death the sins uh, and the deeds of the flesh. And that's our new power. Spirit enables us to put our sinful desires down and obey the will of God. Of God the Father. How cool is that? You see, this is why, this is why the gospel is such good news. Right? It's, it's, because, it's good news because God is not expecting us to fix ourselves. Right? History has made it extremely evident that we are completely incapable of fixing anything. I mean, I like to fix things, but we, we, just, we can't fix the deep things of this life, let alone ourselves. But we must take an effort in our growth towards godliness. And once the Spirit uh, provides us with this new position, this new position in Christ, we are also empowered by the Spirit to obey the words of Christ through and through. Right? The Holy Spirit has a couple jobs. He, he acts like a shining light into dark places. Right? He, uh, the Holy Spirit exposes our sin, and that inevitably leads us to repentance, to saying, you know what, I am sorry. I am a sinner. I do mess up again and again. Right? And the Spirit also works as a lamp that illumines God's Word. You know, as we listen to it uh, read and preached and sung this morning, the Holy Spirit enables us to learn what is true. And it reveals to us what we should hold on to as precious and dear. And finally, the Spirit is like a spotlight. Right? And it's a spotlight that shines directly on Jesus Christ so that we can see Christ in his full glory. Right? The Spirit inevitably changes us just as it did Moses on, on Mount Sinai. Right? When he came face to face with the glory of God, Moses was transformed. There was something different about him. And the work of the Spirit transforms our hearts and our minds, and it sets our minds to the thoughts of God and the will of God the Father. So, church, how many persons are there in the Godhead? Three. There are three. The Shorter Catechism says that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God in the same substance, equal in power and glory. These three persons or personas are in one essence and being. And the concept of the Trinity is not this man-made theory that's injected into text, but it's actually a biblically explained actuality. According to Peter in his opening sentences of his letter. So now what? Why does the Trinity matter? Why has the church been fighting off these incorrect beliefs for the last 2,000 years? The Trinity is not some complicated distraction from the truth of the gospel, as some might claim. But in fact, I think the Trinity is, I believe that the Trinity is a part of the gospel message, as we saw today. Let's look again at a moment, um, for a moment, at John 3.16. I know many of you know this by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Have you ever noticed that this verse kind of wades into the Trinitarian waters? Right? It doesn't provide a complete, uh, a complete defense for this doctrine, but there are truths found here in, God's, in John's simple gospel message. The God of this universe sent his son. So that, in turn, makes God the Father. And the fact that these two persons are uniquely identified, right? It speaks to their distinct persons. They are not one and the same. 
The Son is not the Father, and the Father is definitely not the Son. And it is only through belief and faith in Christ that we obtain life everlasting. And while the Spirit is not explicitly listed in John 3.16, but we do find it just a few verses prior in John 3. John is recording the words of Christ who speaks of the necessity of being born of the Spirit, born through the work of the Holy Spirit. How awesome is that? Trinity's in the Bible. The Holy Trinity is not just a doctrine. It's not just a set of beliefs that are meant for theologians to argue over and ponder over. Right? The Holy Trinity is the only place where we can find a true hope and a true love. And it's so much more than just this mystery of mind-bending, mysterious mind-bending math problem. Right? This is pure God who loves us so much that he gave his son for us and loves so much that he gave himself up for us. And it is from the Father and from the Son that the Spirit indwells us and it enriches our very lives. Even here this morning as we meet and we gather together. As our catechism states, these three are one God, the same substance, the same essence, the same stuff, right? Equal in power and equal in glory. So may glory be given to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever, ever shall be, world without ends. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this morning. I want to thank you for your word and this opportunity that we have to dive into it and find rich truths that are only in a couple of sentences.